Not. Look at your face. But for those who are regulars, think his face always looks like very unexpressive. So you'll just have to take my word for it that I'm excited about what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now we've been preaching our way through a topical series called Promises That Propel, where we look at promises of God in the Bible and how they sort of work their way out throughout the Bible, but not just as a way of thinking these are nice, encouraging thoughts. We specifically call it promises that propel because we believe these are promises that if we cling on to, they actually move us forward, grow us in our Christian maturity. And last week, our topic was power in prayer. And we talked about the idea that when we pray, there should be an expectation that God will act. Because God hears our prayers, they come before the very throne room of God. He's able to do abundantly more than all we ever ask or imagine. He delights to give gifts to his children. So we should come before him with a sense of expectation. Not necessarily expectation that he'll give us exactly what we ask for, because often what we ask for isn't what's best for us. And often what he'll give us is what is better for us, even though it's different and maybe the opposite of what we ask for. But if our God is a God who loves to give good gifts, one of them is his word. And so I'm encouraged to remember that any time that we come to his word, There should be that same degree of expectation that he has given it. He doesn't waste his time or his words. So as we look to his word this morning with a sense of expectation that God, what we're looking at this morning, you've given to us for your reasons. It doesn't return to you void, it says. So we're going to pray that we'll come before God's word with the expectation that God would work in us and through us uh, through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, What a joy it is to come before you in prayer. What a joy it is that we live in a country where we can so freely have a copy of your word, your communication to us that shows us everything that we need to know about you, how we come to salvation, how we live in a relationship with you and what is the wonderful hope that you have for our future. Lord, we thank you that your word doesn't return to you void. It's able to make us wise to salvation. It is able to make us complete and equipped for every good work. And so we come with great expectation that your word will work in us and through us by the power of your spirit, even despite the inadequacy of the messenger who's bringing the message, but because we have a confidence in the power of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I have in my hand an acorn. Now, for the kids who are still in here, what trees produce acorns? Oh, Mia's got a hand up. Oak trees. Is Robbie saying that's not an oak tree? Is, is... Ah. Here I was thinking I just made an idiot of myself, and not, I suppose to some degree I just have. But oak trees do not just only produce acorns. Acorns can produce oak trees. Every single thing needed to produce another large, fully mature oak tree is in that acorn. 
Now, it doesn't happen automatically. Like, if I just stand here for a really, really long time, an oak tree's not just going to start growing out of my hand, which is is great because that would be heavy and inconvenient. Now, you need to plant it, you need to water it, you need to feed it. But every single thing needed to make that big, grand oak tree is here. You don't need to add something later on to help it to grow leaves or to grow bigger. Everything is here. And our salvation is very similar. When you come to Christ, when you are a new creation, at that moment you have everything you need to grow into the mature Christian that God has designed you to be. Everything you need. Peter says we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Now this is our fourth sermon in the series of Promises That Propel. And the title we're looking at today is God is at work in you. And what probably makes this morning different than most of the ones we've done so far is that this morning is the first time we're going to spend the majority of our time in the Bible passage that we actually had read before the sermon. Although we will go wider as well. And I've got to admit, when I first planned this series and I chose this as one of the topics for the week, I actually had a different angle in mind as to where this sermon was going to go. But the more I studied Philippians chapter 2, the more I saw that there was a richer and a deeper message that I hadn't even really contemplated. So that's worth pursuing over my initial plan. And I'll say, because of what it speaks about, this is a message which is important for us to hear. If you are in Christ, and if you think the matter of sin is an important issue, then this is worth listening to. This is where we're going this morning. God is at work in you, so work out and start fighting. If you happen to get violently ill and need to leave, I would encourage you to later go back and listen to the recording because I can assure you that the overview of this message is not God is at work in you, so go to the gym and punch on. They're they're just headings. That's not quite the direction that we're taking with it this morning. Same with God is at work in you. That's the very promise from which the whole premise of this sermon was born. That God is, not maybe, not could be, God is at work in you. Now, when Paul wrote those words to the church in Philippi, he didn't start scratching his head and thinking to himself, do I need to contact some of the other locals in Philippi to see if this is true before I write it? Do I need to send some spies in amongst the Christians to see if it looks like God's at work in them, if it looks like there's any evidence? No, Paul knew that the true facts are correlated. If you are in Christ, if you are a new creation... God is presently, continually at work in you. So he writes, verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now I want you to take that in for a moment. This isn't an abstract concept that's just interesting to learn about. If you are in Christ... The almighty God who created the entire world just by speaking is at work in 
you. Every moment, every day, continuously, this is your reality. And specifically, it says, to will and to work that which is pleasing in his sight. In other words, to give you both the desire and the ability to live a life which pleases him. Can you imagine if every single one of us genuinely took hold of that idea and ran with it for the rest of our life? That would be a promise that propelled. That would have dramatic change in the way in which we live, the way in which we saw the world in which we live in. One thing you'll notice, if you haven't noticed before, when you read through your New Testament, every single book, without exception, in some way deals with the concept of sin. And it's kind of like the authors realise that every Christian, both then, but for all time, would need to struggle with sin. Even Paul, who writes these words in Romans 7, speaks about how the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he knows he shouldn't do, he keeps finding himself doing them. And one of the central messages he communicates to the Philippians, in verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you, or if I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now most of our focus today is going to be on verses 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2, which is an expansion of what it looks like in practice to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Every single premeditated action we ever do, in other words, every single thing we do intentionally, has two aspects. It has a desire, like a want to do something, and it has an action that carries out to do that thing. Or to use the language of Philippians 2, it has a will and it has a work. And God promises that you that if you are in Christ, God is working at you in both of those areas, both your will, your desire, your work, your action. So clearly, we all must just be perfect then. If everything that we plan to do is a matter of will and work, and God's working in both of those, clearly we're just all so sanctified and perfect. Well, Paul, who writes these things, he's very well aware of his own tendency towards sin. But I wonder if when you read words like this, you read it and go, I know God's true when he says stuff. But if I'm being honest, sometimes I just don't feel like God's at work in me shaping my will and my actions. Or maybe you might look and say, I don't see evidence that God is working in me, in my will and in my actions. But let me tell you, God is constantly at work in his children to will and to work that which is pleasing in his sight. Whether that's visible or not. And where it's not visible externally in our actions, you can guarantee 100% the cause is not that God has stopped working within you. He's presently and continuously working in Christians both that we would desire and act to please him. Now that 
some sense shouldn't surprise you. You think when we come to faith, God places his Holy Spirit within us. It makes sense that he would desire to work holiness in and through us and out of us. Of course he desires holiness. That's the whole point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't go off into sexual immorality. Don't you know you are a temple of the Holy Spirit that lives within you? He's reminding them of two aspects. You have the power of the Holy Spirit within you who desires to work holiness. Not only don't ignore that, don't ignore what God has provided for you, but don't offend the Holy Spirit in the body he is dwelling within by causing him to be a partaker with you in your sin. Why would you ignore and offend what God has given? Paul makes a similar point when he's talking about our struggles with sin in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. He talks about you should stop living this way and start living this way. He gives different things. No longer do this, but instead do this. This belongs to the old sinful nature. This belongs to your new nature. And right slap bang in the middle of that in verse 30 he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. It's like he's saying, don't sin, don't live this way. You don't have to because God has placed his Holy Spirit within you. The same Holy Spirit that Romans 8.13 says he has given to you to put to death the deeds and the desires of the flesh. So if God's at work in us, how do we experience that transformation? It's all well and good to say God's doing stuff in me, but how does that play out in our life? Well, to one extent, we've actually reversed the order of the verses, and I've done that for a particular reason. We started with verse 13, now we're going back to verse 12. We're seeing that God is at work in you, So he says, work out. The very first word of verse 12 is therefore, which means that he's sort of bringing something, wrapping up a conclusion that builds on what he's said beforehand. Everything from chapter 1, verse 27, where he said, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel, all the way through to where he's got in chapter 2, where he's spoken about how Christ has been exalted to the highest place and is coming again and every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In light of all of that, he summarizes and concludes, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in your absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he begins talking about their past obedience. And now as he encouraging them to continue in their obedience and to obey all the more. And he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a familiar verse. It's a familiar expression. But I think it's one that sometimes we just think is a puzzling verse or a puzzling expression. And even one that we often are prone to misunderstand. When he talks about salvation, what does he mean? Does he mean your conversion coming to saving faith, that initial moment of faith? No, he's, Paul, chapter 1, verse 1 says, to those who are in Christ... 
He doesn't need to call people to become in Christ because they are in Christ already. Nor when he says work out, is he telling people, I want you to figure this out. I want you to figure out how this, all of this works. He's not saying I want you to figure out how you became saved. He's not even saying I want you to figure out how you live day by day. But if he's not talking about initial conversion, what is he talking about? If he talks about salvation. Well, the Bible speaks of salvation in three different ways. It says you have been saved. As you could call that your conversion. In 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, a number of times Paul uses the expression about those who are being saved describe God's ongoing saving work of, or we could call our sanctification or us becoming more like Christ. And the Bible also speaks of be, we will be saved like our future glorification to go be with him forever. And it's this ongoing salvation that he's speaking about now, our sanctification. And Paul says, you've obeyed in the past, now I want you to continue to obey by working out your ongoing salvation. Now I've said working out does not mean to figure it out. So what does this word mean? I won't read this out in its entirety, but this is, comes from a dictionary defining what this Greek word behind this means. It means to work out, to bring about, to accomplish, to carry out a task until it's finished, to produce, to cause. So Paul is saying to these people, you cause, you produce this, your salvation. At which point you start wondering, has Paul used the wrong word here? Has he just not understood what the word means? Surely Paul's not saying somehow by your great effort, somehow you're going to do something which is pleasing to God. Doesn't the author of Hebrews say that Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith? Why would he say you work it out, you produce your ongoing salvation with fear and trembling. In my almost 25 years as a Christian, I've read through this passage lots of times. And there's a really obvious word connection between verses 12 and 13. And I'm so slow, I only picked up on it this week. In verse 13, he's speaking of how God works in... Beforehand, he says... Work out. What God is working in, he is encouraging us and commanding us to work out that what God is at work in us, that it would permeate through everything that we do, think and act. Peter O'Brien in his commentary says this working out means continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. It starts to sound a bit like heresy, doesn't it? It's like, surely we can't be talking about all of our efforts somehow to work about something which is pleasing in the sight of God. Does God do it? Do I do it? It's all getting a bit confusing. I think Charles Spurgeon puts together these two ideas in a very helpful way. He says, God works, says the text. Therefore, we must work out because God works in. 
The assistance of divine grace is not given to us to put aside our own efforts, but to excite them. So if you've got the famous let go and let God quote, you might want to take it down. God comes in us to work in us. What? To work us to be indifferent? No, to work in us to will with resolution and firmness. Does he work in us having willed to sit still? No, he works in us that we might do. There's not a contradiction between the two. It's the same language that Paul uses in himself in Colossians chapter 1 when he says he wants to present Christ to everyone and everyone maturing in Christ. He says, this I do, struggling and laboring and toiling according to the power that he provides. When Peter's talking about the use of your gifts, he says, to the one who serves, serve with the strength that God provides. Even as Paul is speaking about his role as an apostle to the Corinthians, he goes on to say this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. There's no contradiction. He says, I work hard because the Almighty God is at work in me and so I work hard with all my strength and might according to the power that he provides. God works in so that we can work out and start fighting. Now, unfortunately, church history is full of fighting throughout the centuries, and that's not what we're talking about, which is good. But this transformation that we've been talking about, if God's working in and calls us to produce, to work that out, we should be fighting for that. We should be fighting for that result that God is working within us to produce. And a right place to start as we think about this is the gospel itself. The same gospel that Paul spoke to the Corinthians says, I pass on to you what were received of first importance. The Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. In another way, he describes what Christ did and has achieved on our behalf. He writes it this way to the Colossians. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, by what Jesus Christ has done on behalf of sinners, sins are forgiven. Debt is cancelled. You are made alive. He's disarmed the powers working against you. Without the gospel, every single thing that we've spoken about this morning is impossible. You and I cannot put to death the desires and deeds of the flesh. The only sin that you and I can ever defeat is the sin that Jesus Christ has already defeated for us. We've been set free from the consequences of our sin. 
We've been set free from our slavery to sin. We've been set free from our slavery to following Satan and his desires. Now, a number of you would have memorized Romans 6.23. It's a very well-known verse. Any takers want to show that they've memorized Romans 6.23? It's not bragging. It's not, this, is not, this is not pride. Just for fun. Interaction. There you go. If I had a smiley stamp, Cass would be getting that on her head there. But there's a cracker just before that that often doesn't get memorized. Verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. He says, you have been set free from sin. You are no longer slaves to sin. And what you get now... In this life is sanctification, spiritual growth, becoming more and more like Jesus. That's the fruit you get when you are saved. And in the end, future, you get eternal life with him forever. So God's at work in us, working with our desires and our actions. He's placed his spirit within us, which according to Romans 8.13, is given to us that we might put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, Steve, I know every single thing that you've said. You haven't told me a single new thing. Even that word connection that you hadn't figured out for 25 years, I knew that ages ago. I'm not some like you. But I still find this an ongoing struggle with sin. I still don't find that I can fight sin in a way like we seem to be talking about this morning. Well, there's a couple of things I want to say here. The first is that we are often our harshest critics. I'm very quick to think that nothing's changing in my life. And you're probably likewise the same. I think it's helpful, to ask, if you think that way, to ask some people who know you well, say, is God doing anything in my life? Is, are things changing? Because I don't feel like it, and sometimes we don't see it as well as our friends around us might do. But secondly, this word fight that I've used is the right language to use about how we deal with sin. Look at the way in which Peter warns Christians regarding their sin. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. That's not light terminology. Wage war against your soul. Sin will fight. For victory, guaranteed. Will you fight for sanctification? The sin, the passions of the flesh, wage war against your soul. That is strong language. It's not something like it's a little bit annoying, like you've got a fly and you hit them high, hit them low, hit them with the old pebo. For those who remember that very old ad. Where you've got like just some quick fix, spray, gone, all sorted. We do love quick fixes. There's a multi-billion dollar industry of quick fixes for weight loss. Man, if you can get a tablet and it's no, nothing inconvenient, you just take it, who wouldn't want that? I haven't come across anyone who's got a quick fix for war. Imagine Australia was to enter into war with another country, I got conscripted, and I thought, you know what, I think I've got a quick fix in mind. I walk out onto the battlefield and I say... 
Stop it, yes. Don't be such bullies. We just get on, love one another. Or maybe I might take 10 seconds, give them some helicopter punches. Now, who in their right mind would say that either the stop it years or the helicopter punches for 10 seconds would say, I waged war? It's not really the sort of thing you see in these big epic war films, is it? There's not, there's not like a deleted parts in the DVD for Braveheart where they, where they said, oh, stop it, years, and they decided to make it for you can take our lives but you can't take our freedoms. They thought that, that sounded better. We're called a fight. Yet as silly as that analogy was, helicopter punches and stoppages, when I reflected and I thought about it, I have fought sin like that on far too many occasions that I care to recount. Now when dealing with temptation and struggle, I might just do like a five-second prayer, God, God, help me, and think, I have fought like a warrior. And then I, when I fall into and carry out that sin, then I go on complaining. I fought like a warrior and God didn't help me. He didn't deliver me. Now, I'm not saying that it's a matter of short prayer, long prayer, or somehow you pray for ages, then that somehow that's, you, that, that's what pleases God. Although there's probably a sense to which if you're focusing on God in prayer, it's probably very hard to, for your desires for sin to continue to, to go on. But even the very fact that we do go to God in prayer, short or long, that says something. It says that we come to him because we acknowledge that he can do something about this. And the fact that we go to him and we don't just try something, we we acknowledge that we can't. We're powerless to do something against our sin. But the thing is, when I then go on to carry out and act out that sin, I've said and not trusted that God is at work in me both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. I have kind of silently said that this sin is more powerful than anything that God has made available to me as a Christian in Christ. Christ has defeated my sin. Christ has taken away my slavery to sin, my slavery to Satan. He's disarmed the powers. He's placed his spirit within me to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Really? I didn't have enough resources at hand? Every failing I have ever had, I've actually had at my disposal all of the resources to stand. So was every single Christian before me and every single Christian after me. And guess what? Despite the false claims of some, nobody other than Christ has lived a sinless life. Such is the deceptive and powerful appeal of sin to our hearts. So Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I think that fear and trembling is probably different the way we often think about it. Particularly if we've decided this work out your salvation means talking about being saved, your conversion. Therefore, you should have fear and trembling about that. But remember, he was writing to those who were already in Christ. 
Remember, he's telling us to work out what God is working in with fear, fear of offending the one who has provided me everything to work in through me in my desires, in my actions, but out of a trembling that the very almighty God is at work in me, that power that is here available to me. Brothers and sisters, sin wages war against your souls. Every single one of you. We need to be prepared. You can't just cruise on through life thinking, oh, sin's never going to come my way, I've never struggled with anything difficult at all, I'll just keep cruising on, everything will be sweet. Sin will come knocking. Regardless of how isolated or pure you try to remain, sin will come knocking. And you need to ask yourself, when it does, how will I fight? Do you think armies just are a, a list on a computer database somewhere of people who've put their hands up who said, yeah, if there happens to be a war, I'm willing to help out. And then a war comes, they just send out a text message to everyone on the list who's had no training and says, off you go, wartime. Before you can officially be and serve in the army, you must have training whether you ever enter into combat or not. Because we don't just go into war unprepared. In the last church which I passed, there was an older guy who favourite expression is what he called the five P's. And I heard it from him many, many times. Proper planning prevents poor performance. You tell me over and over again. What he's saying is that being prepared is your greatest protection from being ineffective. So if sin wages war against our souls... What's your plan? What is your preparedness to stand firm in that moment? I came across this not that long ago, something from John Piper. This is a method which he has found helpful, and I think it's abundantly helpful in how we fight for our sanctification. I'll put this up on our Facebook later on today for those, because I don't expect you to memorise it now. He says, fight with anthem. It's an acronym. A Avoid it. Now Paul says, flee from sin. Don't go anywhere near it. N, he says, say no to it in five seconds. The more you ponder on it, the more you are going to desire it. I know it and guarantee. T, turn to something more excellent and what Christ has done. Think of something praiseworthy, whatever is noble and pure like it talks about in Philippians 4.8. H, Hold that thought. Remain your focus there until the temptation is gone. E, enjoy the greater promises of God. I'd encourage you, if you know there are certain areas you continue to struggle in, that you memorize what God's word says about that thing so that it is at hand when you need it. And M, move on to Christ-exalting activity. Now you may notice, I didn't have to look at my notes once for that. And that's not just because I wanted to impress you that I'd memorise something. But if the fight against sin is serious, I don't want to get to that point where I think, you know, one time I reckon I came across something that sounded like it would be really, really helpful. Uh, It might have been John Piper. I'm going to Google fighting sin, John Piper. No, I won't. 
in the middle of a battle with temptation, I'm not going to go looking for it. I need these resources at hand. It's no good in the middle of struggle to think, oh, what might I do about it? No one turns up to war and thinks, okay, got a gun. Who's on whose side? How do we figure this out? You're prepared. You need these things at hand. Now, John Piper is not my saviour. He's not your saviour. What John Piper has done is put together a practical way of outworking what the scriptures call us to do. Jesus is our saviour. Only Jesus is our saviour. And don't think by putting that out there, you think, oh, that's just a few points, quick fix. Fighting sin is never a quick fix. Even doing that is not a quick fix. If you are holding that high, lofty thought of God until sin is dead, until that desire is dead, that can take time. That doesn't just go, oh, yeah, sin, I'm just going to disappear now. You're thinking nice, pleasant thoughts about Jesus. I'll just tuck off for another day. Killing sin is hard. It may take a long time for that desire to go, but it's a, it's a war it's worth fighting. Knowing that God is at work in me to will and to work to his good pleasure has placed his spirit in me to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Guess what? That war is not going to go away anytime soon. We're going to be fighting that war until either we die or we see Jesus face to face. And even though you may have killed that desire on one day, that same desire may come knocking with as much strength or even more the next. But he has defeated my sin. He has set me free from my slavery to sin. He has set me free from my slavery to Satan. He has disarmed the powers that work against me. He is at work in me to work and to desire things that are pleasing to his sight. He's placed his spirit within me to put to death the deeds of the flesh. He is at work in me that we might work out and start fighting with the strength that he provides. Because when you are in Christ, he has given you, with the moment of your salvation, every single thing you need for life and godliness. Everything, resource you need at your disposal to grow into the mature Christian that he has called you to be. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's amazing to think of what you have already accomplished for us and what you have provided for us. Yet how easily we get enticed by our own desire and, and fooled even to thinking that, that it's something more desirable than what you have provided for us. To think that it's more powerful than your mighty working within us. God, we thank you that even though all Christians of all time have made this mistake. We thank you for the wonderful promise that when we confess our sins, you are pure and just. You cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you have provided for us. Help us to take seriously a war against sin, that we might take hold of what you have already provided for us. And Lord, that this promise that we've looked at this morning 
might help us to grow in our walk with you, that we might shine as lights in a darkened world. I can ask in Jesus' name. Amen.